and the church as well here are the coordinators of WEC Northern Ireland um, and I have a few other missionaries too and today we're going to talk about mobilizing mission this is our second week on that talk and what I want to do primarily today is to, to focus around one story in the Bible which is the story of the woman at the well so that we can really think and engage with um, what it means to be on mission, what mission looks like in our life and, and how Jesus did mission. So um, there are some Bibles at the end of the rows. We are going to have the words on the screen, but I just love that we can actually look at a Bible ourselves and go through this story. So if you can, open your Bible at John chapter 4. And Debbie is going to come up and read this story. It's reasonably long, so you get to listen to her lovely voice and not mine. International Women's Day and Mother's Day. Uh, so it's great to be talking about a story, and this is actually the longest recorded conversation between Jesus and the woman that we find in Scripture um, to talk about it today. So I just wanted to, as well, when we're thinking about a mission and how we share our faith, I wanted to look at a little quotation from... Maybe put up that quote by Eugene Peterson. 
not that one. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> um, great. So this is uh, what Eugene Peterson says, and he says, how easy it is to get interested in ideas of God and projects for God and gradually lose interest in God alive, deadening our lives with the ideas and the projects. Jesus is a name that keeps us attentive to the God-defined, God-revealed life. And um, in the, the person of Jesus, we understand what truth looks like. We understand what the gospel looks like because he lives it out. And I think this picture, this story, paints a great picture in particular. But here is my problem with this story, right? If I was to look at the story, it says that, that Jesus met this woman and he was tired. And this is what I would be. I would be hangry, which is a new word, isn't it, that we've adopted in our society. But it refers to the state of anger or ire caused by a lack of food, resulting in negative changes in one's emotional state. Okay? Or there's also this, which I have been in this place too. I'm sorry for what I said when I was hungry. And so when I read this story, I get to the bit where Jesus, it says, you know, Jesus is tired from his journey and he's hungry and he's thirsty. And I think, I don't, I wouldn't get the rest of the story because I wouldn't engage with that woman. I'd be too hungry. I'd be thinking, if I was like full and if I was not tired, and oh, there's a woman, maybe I should talk to her. Um, you know, and I think so often in life, our circumstances are not ideal. The opportunity to share faith with somebody uh, appears, but we're kind of thinking, oh, you know, I'm too busy, I have to pick up kids, or, you know, life is too hard for me at the moment. And uh, what I want to challenge you with is that if we're going to mobilize mission, if we're going to share Jesus with people, we have to be prepared to do that, whatever, thank you, whatever circumstances happen to be going on in our lives, because perfect circumstances will not um, show up. But so Jesus is with um, this woman. So there you go, it's a nice picture for you visual learners. And um, Jesus is, is talking to this woman. So the context is very important, isn't it? Uh, and some of us probably know the context of that, so you're going to have to help me. This is going to be slightly interactive, okay? So I want information back from you. So, gee, so the woman is surprised that Jesus actually talks to her. Why is that? Jesus and Martin, what's the problem with that? Jews don't talk to Samaritans. No, because Samaritans are um, really a half-breed. It's a historical thing. They would have intermarried with other uh, people around them. And so we're not kind of, if you like, pure Jews. The other problem with this woman is that she's a, a woman. Okay? So she's a Samaritan that Jews don't talk to anyway. And she's a woman. And in fact, at the start of the story, we hear that Jesus and his disciples are on a journey and they're actually going to Galilee. They're leaving where they were near Jerusalem and they're going to Galilee. And actually Jews would very often take up to an extra two days on their journey to get to Galilee, not to have to go through Samaria because they didn't want to be near the Samaritans. So, and, and Jesus asks her for a drink. Anybody have an idea what the problem with that is at all? If, she, if, he, if she, he was going to have a drink, he would have to drink from her cup. Problem? She's a woman, and she's not only a woman, but she's a Samaritan, so therefore she's unclean. So, Jesus asks, and that's why it's a, sh it's a shock. So Jesus engages with this woman to ha ask her for a drink, 
But she is a Samaritan. She's a woman. She's unclean. And he breaks through all the kind of social constructs that they have, all the, the, the issues that there would be there in that environment, and, and he asks her for a drink. And what's really interesting uh, about that is that Jesus actually asks for help. Can you give me a drink? And we look at the, the Greek origin of that word. We see that it actually comes from an inferior person asking a superior for something. So Jesus puts himself in a place of humility in order to engage with this woman. He says, can I have a drink? And it's not just because he was thirsty, but because he wants to engage with her. And, you know, so often in life, particularly when it comes to sharing our faith, we put ourselves in a superior position. We have information that other people don't know. We're going to tell them something that's going to bring light to them. And so uh, if we get this wrong, we can approach people with a here, let me tell you what you're doing wrong with your life. Let me tell you what you should be doing or what you shouldn't be doing. Um, And that then puts the the other person on the the defensive. But when we look at the, the model of Jesus, as he engages with this woman, he asks her for help. And I found in my own life that asking other people for help is one of the best ways to build a relationship and uh, to connect. And so um, a few years ago, I was setting up um, a men's group. And one of the things we wanted to do was to do some fishing. And I've been fishing like a few times in my life. Uh, and I didn't really know that much. But I had a neighbor across the road who loves to fish. And so we would have had like those neighbor conversations, you know, that don't last more than about 10 words at a time. And like after 10 years, it's the same conversation. Um, but I went and said to him, hey, Mark, you know, I know that you fish. Could you help me buy fishing rods? I suddenly became Mark's best friend. Uh, And we spent, like, the day driving around to all these shops I didn't know that existed that sold fishing rods. And he was telling me about all these um, fishing rods and stuff. And now, um, every couple of weeks, uh, at a certain time of the year, I get a knock on the door, and there's a bag with freshly caught fish. So I don't even have to fish. (laughs) Mark does it for me. The only thing I need to do is... uh, uh, got them and, and cook them, so which is an experience that the kids love to watch in that kind of when you're watching something that's really disgusting but you can't look away kind of experience. Um, but uh, and then just a couple of months ago, I managed to get four of my neighbours involved in a project. I was building a playhouse for one of my daughters, and um, the roof was pre-built, and it literally took five of people to um, put it on top. And so I thought, well, who can I ask in church? to help me, because I know loads of people, and I know loads of people could help me, and I know loads of tall people as well, which I am not, <laughs> to get the roof on, you know? And then I thought, well, why don't I just ask my neighbours? And so these neighbours that I didn't really know knocked their door, hey, listen, you know, would you be free some night? Could you help me lift the shed roof on? And away we did that, and so we got to know these people, and then they wouldn't go away because they wanted to chat um, and stuff like that. And so, you know, I think when we think about mission, when we think about sharing our faith and sharing our lives, we need to do it in the everyday. We need to actually realize that it's reasonably easy to connect with people if we're willing to take the right position before them. And and so Jesus connects with this woman in this story. And um, he connects with her. And more than wanting to tell her information, he wants to get to know her. And so they enter into this, this dialogue, this conversation that we have read, you know, where, where she asks for a drink, and, and, or he asks for a drink, and she says, you know, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, how can you ask me for a drink? And um, Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is 
that was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so when Jesus does this, he's actually trying to tease out of her, are you actually interested in what I have to say? Do you want to engage in conversation? And what we see is that, um, that, and throughout this story, is every time the woman asks a question, like, you know, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, why are you asking me for a drink? And, you know, you, you say that Jesus, God should be worshipped at the temple, and we say he should be worshipped in the mountain. Do you know what? Every single time the woman tries to start an argument, Jesus um, doesn't respond. He doesn't answer her question at all. Um, he, he starts to talk to her about the gift of God. He ignores argument. And uh, argument's a very interesting thing. Argument is the, the enemy of intimacy. It enables us to hold the other person at arm's length. It defines the rules of engagement and the weapons of our warfare. So people like to argue, don't they? Uh, and some people like to argue more, more than others. But what this woman was actually trying to do, in a way, because she was defensive, uh, because of the brokenness in her life, she was trying to create a set of circumstances in which she could manage and control. Let's have an argument. You know, who are you to ask me for something? You know, let, let's have an argument about where we worship God, because that's easy, that's manageable. I don't have to enter into that personally. You know, it keeps everybody at arm's length. But... <coughs> Isn't it sad that when it comes to sharing our faith that we as Christians are, are quite likely to end up in an argument? And do you know what you get when you enter into an argument? You get the, the result of an argument very often, which is a winner and a loser. So if you win, the other person loses. Wow, you've really shown them Jesus there. If you lose, the other person wins. doesn't really work either. And so what I would suggest to you is that if we're really going to have to share our faith, we need to learn, as we see in this story, to be able to sidestep arguments and remove that from the equation um, so that we can really connect with the person. So Jesus starts to speak to this woman's condition, you know, and he says to her, go call your husband. And the, the, the scripture tells us, that the woman says, I don't, don't have any husband. And, and Jesus says, yes, you're right. In fact, you've had five husbands. And the man you're, you're now with is, is, uh, is not your husband. And I think it's very interesting, you know, why did Jesus say to her, go, go tell your husband, go call your husband? See, the conversation could have ended there. She could have said, okay, I will. Zoom, away she goes, never see her again. But... She's honest. In fact, Jesus said, you know, you, you tell the truth. I think that's important, is that he gave her the opportunity to actually walk away. But she enters into the conversation and she tells him the truth. She actually tells him her brokenness. And he says, you have had five husbands and the man that you're now with is not your husband. And I think a lot of us think, oh, that must have felt awful for that woman, to, for Jesus to call out her sin there. And, and I would like to say to you, I don't believe that he did that. I don't believe that he did that because when he says that to her, and you can look in this, at this in verse 19, she says, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. And then she, she tries to, in a slightly defensive way, start another argument, um, which he again sidesteps. But in Jesus speaking to this woman, he wasn't calling out her sin. He was calling out the place of her pain. Now, scholars say different things about this particular 
a couple of verses. And um, probably, the, you know, when I taught on this a long, long time ago, I maybe would have listened to some of the, the, the more um, silly things. So some people would have believed that she was a prostitute. There's no biblical evidence. There's no scholarly evidence for, the, for her being that. Um, it's more likely that um, she'd had a number of, of bad experiences, bad relationships for one reason or another. She might have had a husband or two that died. But at the end result is this. The person presented before Jesus is this woman who has been through a lot in her life. She's broken. She's lost things. She's lost people. She's lost security. She's lost identity. And the person who she's with now, for one reason or another, won't even accept her as a husband, won't actually marry her because she's been married all these times. And what time of the day is it? Can't hear you. Noon. Okay. And it's going to be rather what? Hot. And where's everybody else? Inside. Inside. So we know that this woman has come to the well and she's in a place of shame. She's in a place of brokenness. And you know, shame's a very interesting thing. We see it from the very start of creation when Adam and Eve have sinned and they're trying to make themselves some clothing to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. That, that we're always trying to cover our shame. We're always trying to hide and very often what we need to do is to have like, a compassionate heart like Jesus, that we can actually speak to someone's condition, someone's pain and someone's brokenness to break through that shame and actually speak into their life. Um, so we have these two people having a conversation. We see that one is broken and wounded. It's prickly and defensive. And the other one is completely secure in who he is. He's able to navigate difficult conversations. He doesn't get caught up in meaningless arguments. He responds to her questions and brings a revelation of truth as a response. You know, when the woman says, you know, which mountain should we um, worship on? Jesus says, that's irrelevant. A time is coming and has come when true worshippers will worship God in spirit and in truth. He reveals truth to this woman. And she says, I know that Messiah is coming. And, and, and Jesus actually reveals to this woman, out of all the people that he comes into contact with in his earthly ministry, very few people does he actually say, it's me. I'm the Messiah. This is who I am. Because Jesus wants this woman to see who he is. He wants her to know that, that actually the king of the universe sees you and knows you, accepts you in your brokenness and wants to speak health and life to you right now. And, and not only that, but Jesus has to, something to give to the woman. He has um, water that will spring up, that will bubble up into eternal life. And the woman's like, I want some of that. Will you give me some of that? Can I have that? And so she starts to change. She starts to be transformed. If you want to turn in your Bibles, the, the, just a little bit that we didn't get to read. From, from verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking to her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? 
They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have given him food? Do you notice that about the disciples that when it comes to food as a metaphor, they never get it because they're actually just thinking about how hungry they are? Um, My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crops of eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. And then, and then it goes on to say that um, many of the Samaritans from that time believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them for another two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. And um, so the woman leaves, the, leaves Jesus. But what does she leave behind? What does she leave behind when she goes? Anybody notice her water jar? What has she gone to the well for? Right? Pretty stupid, eh? She goes back to the town. She's excited. And I want to suggest to you that she, she doesn't leave empty-handed. Um, because she's carrying something with her now that she's encountered Jesus. She goes back and she says a very strange thing. She says, come see a man who's told me everything I ever did. Did Jesus tell her everything that she ever did? Guess? No? No? So if Jesus didn't tell her everything that she ever did, because that would be a rather long conversation, and in some ways it would seem quite pointless. You know, when you were two, you did this, and then when you were three, this happened. Why would she say, come see a man who told me everything I ever did? Because in the encounter with Jesus, this woman felt like Jesus knew her, like nobody else had ever known her in her life. And in experiencing that of being fully known and seen by Jesus, she doesn't run away and hide. She doesn't fall apart. She doesn't hide with her shame she's changed and she's transformed life bubbles up from within her and she goes and tells everybody that jesus is there jesus had said to her i will give you living water right and you will be satisfied and he said the living water will bubble up from within you and spring out into eternal life and you know we actually see the fruit of that in maybe just a few minutes or hours in, in, in the, the context of this situation, is that this woman, having been known and seen by Jesus, is so changed and so transformed by the living water and she receives from Jesus to be seen and to be known and to be loved. Because that's what it's all about, isn't it? That she carries this news and she goes back to the village that she had sneaked away from just a few hours earlier. At noon, when everybody else wasn't there, she'd sneaked away 
in her shame to go and get water, but she goes back to that village. She's forgotten about her water right now because she's got something to carry back with her, which is the presence of God. And she comes and she says, come and see a man who knows everything that I've ever did. And they're all looking at her and going, who is she? Who is this? Is that your woman? You know the woman's been married five times and she's with that bloke. Is that her? And actually it says that the whole village comes out. The whole village responds. The whole village is transformed. And, and, and so Jesus hangs around for a couple of days with them. And actually they say to him at the end of the conversation, we know that you're the Messiah, not just because of what this woman has said, but because we've seen it in you ourselves as well. But these people, their lives are turned around and changed and transformed because of the woman. Because they say, look at her. Do you know who that is? Look at her now. What on earth had happened in this woman's life? She had encountered the living God. It had changed and transformed her. She had walked back into her village, not creeping away in the shadows in shame, but declaring at the top of her voice, I found the Messiah. I found the Messiah. And it wasn't her words that actually convinced them. It was her. She was changed. She was transformed. And in her story and in her life, we see the transformational work of the Holy Spirit. And that's powerful, isn't it? When you really look at it, when you really think about this story. And the disciples, right, are just complete numbskulls. They really are. Jesus says to them, look, you say four months and then the harvest, and I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. They're white for harvest. What field was he pointing at? What field was he looking at? What harvest was he looking at? He was looking at the entire village coming out to meet them. And he was saying, look, he's actually pointing physically at the people. He's saying, look, the fields are white unto harvest. Now, where had they just been? They'd been in the very same village. They'd just come back from it. Had they come back with a harvest? No. And yet they're supposed to be Jesus' disciples. They're supposed to be truth carriers too. But they can't see. And they don't understand. You know, again and again in the Gospels, it says, He who has eyes to see, he who has ears to hear. Are we seeing? Are we hearing? Are we looking with a different perspective? Because the woman did. And she reaped the harvest. It actually says that the, um, the reaper will overtake the sower. I mean, she goes out and sows and reaps in a couple of minutes. Everybody comes to faith because one life transformed is a powerful testimony, is a powerful witness to the reality and to the truth of God. And Jesus can take anybody and do that with. He can take a woman who's living in shame, who's hiding, who's been through all sorts of things. She's probably been abused and neglected and treated badly for a long, long time. She's hiding away. She's going to the well at midday. But now she becomes the key to the transformation of an entire town. She's been offered living water. She's received living water. And it's springing up from within her and spilling out from her into this village. And we see that it is completely changed and transformed. And the disciples are going... Did he get any food? Did he get any bread? What's he talking about? Um, and so I think, sadly, 
what happens to us is that we don't know what we're talking about. We're so busy sort of trying to think about six ways to communicate the gospel or ten principles that we need to, to share with somebody. But actually, God has placed something more valuable within us. And it's not that the the, the gospel, um, in terms of how we explain it uh, in a detailed way, is not, isn't important. But you know what's more important? More important is your story. What is your story? If there's anything you can take away from this story, it's that Jesus engages with people. Because he was a person. He walked this earth. There's a second part to our Eugene Peterson quote, and it says this. Jesus is a personal name of a person who lived at a dateable time in an actual land that has mountains we can still climb, wildflowers that can be photographed, cities in which we can still buy dates and pomegranates, and water we we can drink in which we can be baptized. As such, the name counters the abstraction that plagues spirituality. You see, our faith is not an abstract thing. It came flesh in the person of Jesus. It walked this earth. It encountered people. Those people were changed and transformed. And those people then became, if you like, many Jesuses. Quite hard to say. We're called little Christs, aren't we? That's what Christian means. And so if we're going to be missional people, if we're going to be people who are on mission, then we need to think, what is my story? How has Jesus changed and transformed me? How can I tell my story of encountering the living God and share that with other people? Because that is what really matters. Otherwise, we're just going to communicate information. And information very often stays information in a book. But uh, Paul says to, to one of the churches that he writes to, he says, you are our letter written on human hearts. We're a letter from God. We're a story from God written on human hearts to tell the world about what Jesus looks like. And so what I want to ask you is what is your story? What does it encompass? What does it involve? And, you know, those of us who have grown up in the church, we're a little bit disappointed by our story, aren't we? Because the best stories are always the worst ones. You never want to hear a story about somebody who grew up in a Christian home and who became Christian when they were five, has been a Christian ever since, and does Christian things and says Christian things and goes to church a lot. You know, you want the testimony about somebody who's a real rogue or, you know, who, who did terrible things, and you want to hear about how terrible those terrible things are, and then they get saved. And we've got it completely wrong. Um, and in fact, when, when we're teaching people about how to share their testimony, particularly at something like a baptism, we always say, tell a little bit about your life before you were a Christian. Tell a little bit more about how you came to faith and tell more still about what Jesus has done and who he is in your life now. And sometimes we're waiting for, for life circumstances to change, for our story to get better, for it to sound more amazing or, or for whatever. Um, or sometimes maybe life's hard right now and you kind of think, well, you know, I'm really struggling and life is hard and, you know, when my life gets better, I'll be able to say, well, Jesus brought me through this really hard time and that's lovely. But what if you're going through a hard time right now? What is your story? You see, our story is just as important when we're in the hard time when we're in that place of doubt, when we're in that place of sickness, when we're in that place of struggle, our, our story is just as important 
in that moment as it is in the kind of victory moment where we're looking back and thinking, look how God has brought me. Um, some of you know, some of you don't. But when I was a teenager, I had ME, and I had ME for quite a few years, and um, I got healed from it, miraculously healed from it. I got prayed for it for some people. I wasn't really into healing at the time. I was about 14, and I got healed. And that's great. And so I have a story about healing. But I also have a story about God being with me when I was sick, and God journeying with me, and me holding on to him, and praying and seeking him and believing that I was in his hands whilst I was sick. And both stories are as valid as each other. Um, and, and so when we look at this story of this woman, we see that Jesus' heart is for the lost and, and for the broken. And, and our heart needs to be for them too. We don't want to just be information carriers. We want to be presence carriers. We want to be storytellers of the goodness of God and what he has done in our lives. So that when we tell people, you know, Jesus died on the cross. He died for you. He paid for your sin. If you accept him, you can experience life. Do you know, because that's a quick wee summary of the gospel. But what about if we tell them what that means to us? What that looked like in our life? How that has changed and transformed us? How that continues to change and transform us? You know, sometimes we get so bad at telling people the gospel, that people go, yes, I believe it, and I'm going to respond to it when I'm on my deathbed, because why would I do anything else before then? We've, we've done it so bad that people actually think that that's a good option, because they think, if I have to give my life to Jesus right now, then the rest of my life is going to be boring. The rest of my life is going to be rubbish. The rest of my life is just going to be me sitting around going, when have we got go to heaven and actually do you know as a child I grew up in the church terrified honestly terrified of going to heaven because I thought if heaven is like church and it's for eternity who would want to go and then I was caught in this other position of being in church and church was so boring that I would like pray for the rapture but then I couldn't pray for the rapture because if it got raptured we'd be in church forever and so we've lost connection with the, the transformational work of God. And in this woman, we see that she was lost in who she was and her identity. She was lost in terms of her relationship with God. And she was lost in terms of her relationship with others. But in an encounter with Jesus, she finds salvation. She finds somebody who believes in her and her identity is restored to her. And then she actually finds restoration of relationship with everybody else around her. And that's the wonderful good news, isn't it? That we would encounter Jesus and he would do that with us. And so when we think about mobilizing mission, maybe there's a story that you have that you need to actually literally sit down with a pen and a piece of paper and think, what is it? What is my story? What does it look like? What are the different bits? And what has Jesus done for me in, in rescuing me? But also, what is Jesus continuing to do for me in my life? Because here's a little challenge for us. If we're not continually being changed and transformed by God, there's something wrong. It, it, it's not just like a one-off deal that happened on that date, if you even know that date. It's continual change. It's continual transformation. And so our story continues to be written. We need to be willing to let Jesus hold the pen.
Could it be that safe in the arms of the divine storyteller, we could let him guide the pen as our life, as our life story is written, secure in the knowledge that he knows how it ends and how every chapter unfolds. And so just as we're, we're going to just do a little bit of worship together, um, again, I want us to go away and just think about that story and think about how Jesus engages with this woman. Maybe you need to go and read that story again, but think about how Jesus has engaged with you, what he means to you, uh, how he knows you and loves you and accepts you and sees you. And you know, this morning, if, if you're struggling with shame, Jesus paid for everything at the cross. And so if you're struggling with shame this morning, if you're, if you're struggling with the mess and brokenness in your life, he can come and set you free. He can come and bring life and bring change and transformation. And um, even just as we're worshipping, I just encourage you to bring where you're at before God and ask him to speak into your story and for you to actually see as well just how far you've come and just how much God has done in your life. And for you, in the midst of our brokenness, and from a place of humility, that we would share our story with those that don't yet know him. So let's stand and we'll worship together.